And hello, everybody. Welcome to Paul Listic Behind the Curtain. This is an especially exciting interview for me to do on today's show because, um, listen, if you're like me, you grew up with The Andy Griffith Show. I especially grew up with just this love for and affinity for Don Knotts, not only in his character of Barney Fife, but everything he did, from the incredible Mr. Limpet to the reluctant astronaut. I grew up with Don Knotts and uh, got to meet him a couple of times, but today we're going to spend some time visiting with his daughter. His daughter, Karen Knotts, who is the author of the book Tied Up in Knots, uh, which is available. I think I'll hold it up there for a minute, although I think it probably shows up in reverse. Who knows? Karen, good to see you. Hi, Paul. Thank you. Good to see you, too. So, listen, we're going to talk about your dad because I know that's what everybody wants to do, but I want to talk about you, too. And um, because what's interesting now is you're, you're li- you are a librarian, right? I think I can say that. And, yeah, and yeah. Uh, as I read the book, it was very clear from when you were a little kid, you wanted to perform too. You even got a role in Return to Mayberry. So how have you balanced all of that in your life? Well, I do perform. I have a, now I have a show that I do called Tied Up in Knots, which actually came out before the book. And I've been doing that show for several years. I do it on tour and I work part time as a librarian when I'm not on the road. And that's really nice because it gives me a good ground, you know, a good grounding. And I like being connected to the <laughs> the real world, if you will. Um, But, you know, writing this book was really a journey for me. And I'm so glad I did it. You know, for years, people have been saying to me, you should write a book about your dad. And I would say, oh, no, I'm not an author. I'm an actor, you know, which was, well, the main reason was I didn't think I could write a book. I didn't know I had it in me to write a book. And I didn't, you know, didn't really see what the point was (laughs) at the time. Well, of course, we do. Um, and your, dad wrote, your dad wrote a book as well. I have a signed copy uh, from him. And um, but so he sort of did it. So and I know, you know, that book, I'm sort of curious for people who read this, for those who say those who say, well, I read Don's book. Do we get a different viewpoint here? I think we do. Oh, yeah, completely. My dad, you know, my dad's book is entertaining. Um, it has some little stories and he wrote the way they wrote in those days. Are you familiar with Robert Benchley? He was a monologist who wrote, yeah, like little monologues. Everything was cute, had a little punch line, you know, and and he did, my dad did write a little bit about some of the more dramatic things, but it was not really what we call today a memoir where you go deeply into things of, of a personal nature. His book was more entertainment. And I used some of the stories, I referred to some of those stories in his book in mine as well. And some of them I just put in verbatim because they fit perfectly and I could never improve on them. Um, and I'm not trying to improve on my dad's book, of course, that would be ridiculous. But what I was writing is my own experience, experiencing him. And I wanted the world to know that my dad was not Barney Fife because a lot of people think that Barney Fife is a real character. Of course, they don't really believe that, but in their mind, my dad and Barney Fife are the same. And I was always a little frustrated with that because my dad had so so much dimension to him that they didn't get a chance to know. So my book is a way of sharing those other dimensions of my father with the world. And what I love about the book is that all, all the way through, you've interviewed so many different people in your dad's life, many of whom we know uh, from watching them. And you just you sort of tell a story and then, boom, you'll say, you know, so-and-so, Maggie, Peterson, whoever it is, and it's them talking. Uh, and obviously, you, you transcribe that from conversations you've had with them, which just adds such great reality. That's probably the, acad- 
academic in you. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, but you're right about that. I mean, and that's one thing I've tried to pull away. You know, Lucy, Lucia Ball always said that too. People thought she was Lucy Ricardo. These are characters that these yes. play. And, um, and of course, your dad created so many great ones. There was a consistency, right? When you go back to the Steve Allen days and the, the nervous guy that he played all the way through um, Ghost of Mr. Chicken, Reluctant Astronaut, he always did maintain that nervous sense in a lot of his characters. Yes, except for when he did stage plays. In the stage plays, he he branched out into other characters because they were, you know, theater audiences are more accepting of 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 famous actors playing different kinds of roles, and so he did. Um, but a lot of the nervous energy uh, those characters come from his childhood which was a very nervous childhood because he had a nervous existence. He lived under the same roof with, roof with a paranoid schizophrenic father. I was going to ask you about, I was going to ask you about that because indeed right. fact, he grew up on something called Knott's farm, not, not Berry farm, uh, but, but Knott's farm. And yeah, he had to, he dealt with when he wasn't home, there'd be phone calls. I mean, his, there were some issues, lots of issues with his dad and family life. Yeah. And that was in the 1930s when they didn't have any kind of treatment for that. And so they pretty much warehoused him. He got put into a mental asylum, which is what they called him in those days. But his um, one of the, my dad's older brothers broke him out, you know, got him out of there, which was a very hard thing to do in that back then. He, once you got in, you didn't pretty much didn't come out, but he got him out. So once again, he was back in the family home. Terrifying everyone. I found it really interesting to read about his young life because once again, we sort of start our life with Don Knotts as an adult. But of course, there was a lot before that. And, and I think many, many people may not have known his love for ventriloquism and his, his desire to, I mean, he always wanted to borrow money, get money to buy a, 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 a ventriloquist dummy, you know, at the store nearby. And, and he, he, I think he kind of thought he'd be a ventriloquist, uh, you know, kind of a Charlie McCarthy performer uh, and, and Edgar Bergen in, as the years went on. Well, it wasn't so much his love for ventriloquism. He saw that as a way to get into show business. It was a very practical approach because at the time, ventriloquists were huge. You know, you know, every, ventriloquism was extremely popular and Edgar Bergen was all the rage with Charlie McCarthy. And so he figured, my dad figured, well, I'll just learn that and I'll become a ventriloquist because he's so far away from Hollywood living in that small rural mountain uh, surrounded town, Morgantown, West Virginia. How is he ever going to get to, you know, audition or get out there in the, in the show business circle. So he figured, well, he could get on the radio with that, which is kind of funny. I even have a line in my show about ventriloquist on the radio. (laughs) Well, I I always wondered about that. If you're Edgar Bergen, you're probably moving your mouth all day long. Who knew Uh, (laughs) you're on the radio, but I know you have some stories there when your dad went into the army, he served the country and uh, the ventriloquism thing didn't go over real well with, with the folks in the army. It, well, it did, but um, you know, it was just, he was used to performing in high school and now he was with these men who were fighting a war and it was a terrible war. A lot of people, I didn't even realize that my dad never talked about his war years. I didn't even know he'd won all these medals. I didn't know about it. Um, but and the reason why he didn't talk about it was because it was pretty terrible. I mean, he was fighting in the southeast. The, the, they call it the Pacific Theater, as opposed to the European Theater where the Nazis were over in Germany. Mm-hmm. But the Southwest Pacific was every bit as dangerous and just as terrifying because of the Japanese, how they would torture these men and leave them for the soldiers to find. 
Um, and then they had Tokyo Rose, who was also terrifying for them. Um, it was a whole nightmare. Um, but he was very brave. And so, so anyway, to get back to your point about the, uh, the ventriloquism. So these men were fighting a, a terrible, terrifying war. And the ventriloquist routine was kind of had been geared to the high school crowd. So it wasn't quite hitting his home with this, the audience is quite the same way. And, uh, and by the way, my dad, too, fought in World War II. They never did talk about it. They, they, was, no. they came home and they went to work and they just went on with their lives. And yeah. I know your dad did the same thing. I also, here's something I did not know and learned from your book. Dick Van Dyke always talks about that his idol, the person that really, you know, he learned from was Stan Laurel. Uh, and he had the chance to meet Stan Laurel, literally looked him up in the phone book, rang his doorbell, and he met wow. Stan Laurel. And your dad did, too. And he also yes. loved Stan Laurel. I didn't know that about Dick Van Dyke, but it makes total sense from the faces that he made. But yeah, well, Stan Laurel was, he was so, you know, Laurel and Hardy were the epitome of comedy then. You know, they, they were the role models probably for a lot of people. And just what he did with his face, I don't think any, well, they came from the silent days. So, you know, he, he did so much with his face and did so much mimically. And my dad also did a lot of with his face and body, uh, like using his face and those muscles. And so... And Dick Van Dyke did too. Yeah, I can see that totally. Uh, absolutely, and I know in his early days, you, you wrote that your dad hung around a couple of coffee shops, Cromwell's and Hanson's, and uh, names we all know: Jerry Spiller, Buddy Hackett, uh, Bill yeah. Dana. These, these, this is who he hung around with, and the, the whole show of shows world, and all those folks. That's right. I'm, I'm trying to get a movie made from this book too because it's so perfect for that. You know, it's perfect for the live days of television and for the comedians he hung out with and the whole audition scene in New York and this tremendous story about dad almost missing the audition, which got him to know Andy Griffith. Um, Gosh, if if he hadn't made, made it to that audition, I don't know what would have happened to my dad's career, but it's just, you know, show business. Well, like life is just so full of chance and chance meetings and luck and timing and all that. Uh, it's amazing how much how much that plays a part in your person's life. There's no, and you know, the breaks he got. I mean, Steve Allen show during the Nervous Guy, and just the, the, you know, those some of those early parts of his career that not everybody knows about. They should, um, but yeah. And then we just see where he ends up. I mean, No Time for Sergeants, right? Where he he gets a small scene with Andy Griffith, um, and you know, I remember the first time I saw that movie. You know, you already knew Barney Fife, so you're you're starting to see that in whenever you see those two together. But of course, that preceded all of that. Hmm. Yes, well, Bill Dana was very instrumental for him getting on the Steve Allen Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Dana, I love talking to that man. He was just a lovely man. Um, he said that he he did a little bit of everything because he was the only single guy on the on the writer's staff and the producer staff. So he would go around and see people. He was he was also doing the casting for the show. He was writing, <laughs> producing, and casting, and he saw my dad. He he met dad. When dad got to do a little part on on um, on the lady who was on Sid Caesar's show, Imogene Coco, Imogene she Coco. had her own show for a short time. And my dad got to do one of his monologues on that show. And Bill Dana saw him there. And so um, he got they got together. And, you know, my dad was about to give up and go back home because he his shows that he'd been on had been canceled. And he said, oh, no, you're crazy. I'm going to bring you in to see Steve Allen. You know, you're funny. And so he brought him in and Steve just absolutely adored him. And that's where, you know, his real career really got started there. Yeah. Well, that's why I brought that up. 
And, and, you know, if I had hours with you, I would, we'd spend so much time, but people are get very frustrated if I don't get to the Andy Griffith days and, and beyond that. So, um, and of course it's all, it's a well-known story, but the way he got Barney Fife, when they created, when Danny Thomas created uh, the Andy Griffith show with Andy and stuff, there was no role for Barney Fife. There was no deputy. There was no. Well, there ought to be. Well, you know, Andy thought that my dad was still on the Steve Allen show. They had been out of touch. So it didn't even occur to him. And then dad found out that he was doing this pilot. Uh, and he called him up and said, hey, do you think Sheriff Taylor ought to have a deputy? And Andy said, well, I thought you were doing Steve Allen. And, and dad said, no, it was canceled. And da- Andy immediately said, call Sheldon Leonard. He was the producer. So dad went in and he pitched his idea for this character, Barney Fife. And, and that's how it happened. Um- you write, you know, the heart of the book, well, I should, the heart of the book, because everybody wants to read that part, but it is that whole Andy Griffith section. You, you, you either talk to people who are still around, you had all the stories. I was friendly with Jim Neighbors, and so, and spent some time with him, and so I love kind of thinking about my stories from Jim, and some of the stories you told. Um, let's talk about Francis Favier, if we can, just for, for a minute, because there was always the great stories, you know them, but, you know, Francis was very difficult to work with, and Andy and she didn't get along. There was some truth to, to some of that. But Jim Neighbors had told me that while he was aware of some of that friction, he loved her. And he said that she even taught him how to go antiquing. And they went shopping all the time. And, <laughs> but apparently it had to do with that she didn't like being typecast in that role, even though from what I understand, her gravestone even says Aunt B on it, right? So it's, it's, who, she, it's who she became known as, beloved. Well, you know, she, she probably had ideas, a different idea for how her career was going to go. She was a Broadway actress. And, you know, doing really well on Broadway. And then I guess she came out to, to L.A. and didn't realize she was going to be typecast in this part. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, yeah, I, and I was a little girl. Um, I wanted to part on the Andy Griffith show and the scripts would be delivered to our house. And I would be the first to receive it if I was home from school. I would run with the script up to my room, look through all the pages to find out any female characters that I could practice. And the only female role was... Aunt B in every, in, at least in every show. So I got to talking like her and I would do it. And I did it for dad. I went in there and was having dinner with my mom and I went, Andy, Bonnie, there's a big <laughs> basket of fried chicken and pickles and cornbread. I want you to eat it all up. Don't leave a single crumb. I want everyone to be as plump as me. I, and you have that story in there and I just love it. And, and, by the way, did you, do you remember reading my favorite episode was the pickle story? Do you ever remember that one coming coming to the house? Oh, yeah. That was one of my dad's favorites, too. Yeah. I don't remember exactly each. <laughs> that was a long time ago. I don't remember. I'll fill you in. Coming, but <laughs> I did remember. I read a lot of them, you know. Um, but that that one, Barney and the Choir, the pickle story, and Barney's first car, those three were my dad's favorite episodes. Yeah. And also, the first time you went to the studio and you told which I didn't know this, I thought all the stars, they got their own cars. And you said... Or they, they're their own parking spaces. And you said only, if I read it right, only Frances Bobbier had a park. She had a nice car, too, but only she had a parking space. Well, at that time, uh, that was the very beginning of the show. But see, Desi Lou is a very small studio. <laughs> um, and today it's uh, it has a different name now. It's gone through a lot of names. But oh, yeah. They finally actually went and built a parking structure for the studio because <laughs> it was so uh, never room for people to park there. And so of the characters, by the way, I learned from your book. I mean, I, I always knew, of course, Jim playing Gomer. I didn't know that George Lindsay was to actually have that role first. And then when 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 I think it was Andy came across Jim, I was like, no, Jim's in. And, and George Lindsay had to wait for that role until until yeah. Jim left the show. So you've got a lot of inside scoop that I didn't even know that. 
Yeah, you know, and you know how I got a lot of my scoops was I go to Mayberry Days every year and I perform my show. And um, up until now, of course, it's different because uh, Betty Lynn has passed. But we used to always have lunch together. Um, Betty Lynn, Maggie Peterson, who played Charlene Darling, um, me and um, Laura Hagen was there. um, Earl Hagen's widow. A couple of times. There have been some different people. But um, we would just be talking, and I would get a lot of information just from their conversation. I can um, imagine. Well, I've been, I haven't been to Mayberry Days. I've been up to Mount Airy just to, to be there and see it and, and sort of be around. And I had lunch with, with Thelma Lou, with uh, Betty Lynn one day, and yeah, that's one of the days I met your dad. And um, uh, she was fascinated. She was a chain smoker, by the way. I, I'll, I'll note that, right? You know, <laughs> I had to like, get her another ashtray. I mean, she was like, filling the ashtray, but so filled with stories. And one of the things she told me, um, I don't think I read this in your book, was that characters like her, I would have thought of them as major, but like they didn't get costumes. They had to bring their own clothes and they were paid like 150 bucks a day. And if you talk, and you did write about this, if you talked about a raise, you were gone. Well, yeah, that was, remember, this is way back in the early days of sitcom. This is, they had just transitioned from New York being the center of comedy to Los Angeles. It had only been a few years and so, you know, the union, all that stuff hadn't really mobilized and they had to do so many more shows per uh, season than they do now. Of course, now there's so much more, so many more shows on. There's so much more competition. Mm-hmm. Um, the Andy Griffith show might not have survived all that competition. There's so many eyeballs going in different directions. There's so many choices now. But then there was only the few channels. You had to watch those channels. That's all there was. So. And- they had the time to cultivate and grow and develop until um, until they finally got the word you're on. You're you're now right. you're, we're now giving you the go ahead. And so many stories of Jim neighbors tossing you around and you getting yeah. sort of luscious with it and stuff. But you also, you know, I know you spent some time with, with Ronnie Howard and getting to know him, but one of the and it was a line from the book I want to try and remember, and essentially you said this was a setting in which the, the adults acted like kids and the kids wanted to be adults. Yeah. It was, well, it was my take on it, you know, um, from everything that I read and heard and interviewed and, and what Ron Howard wanted to be an adult. He was studying everything moment to moment. And they did give him a childhood, but he would really wanted to learn. And he did. He fit in. He fit in with the adults, too. So um, did you. So were you jealous as a kid of like of a Ronnie Howard? Like, hey, you know, all they have to do is write, give Ronnie a girlfriend. And, you know, I could be there because I know it's, you wanted to be in that world. I did. I, I wasn't I wouldn't say that I was jealous, though, because I had a pretty good life. You know, I had a good life and I had a wonderful father, a wonderful family life. But I did want to be on that show and I did everything I could. But when my father explained to me that, you know, acting is not a good life for a child, I accepted that. And um, I just went my own way and did my own thing. But I still got to go on the set and be a part of it in that way. Yeah. And of course, folks like Hal, who played Otis, the, the town drunk, and you even wrote about him. He goes, he was no drunk. Yeah, I don't I think you wrote he like hardly ever drunk, uh, even had <laughs> drinks and that kind of thing. But I yeah. imagine all those characters so classic and iconic that they all had to deal with. You have so many stories of people just seeing your dad. Maybe they didn't even he didn't even know they knew him, but then they would do a Barney thing to let let him know that they knew who he was. <laughs> well, if you don't mind, I would like to share my screen with you for a second here. Oh, yeah. I don't know how to do that. So go ahead couple posters here um you're very technical you have technical skills 
I'm a librarian. And also I have a lot of slides of my show. Okay, so this is the book that you had shown earlier. This is a new show that I am developing now that I'm doing right now with Rick Roberts. A lot of people, a lot of people in the Midwest or around the country know Rick Roberts is this wonderful stand-up comedian. And as you can see down in the corner, he does a spot-on impression of Barney Fife. Yeah. The show is called Knots So Fast. And we have a booking in uh, Dalhart, Texas on October 29th. And we are looking for more bookings. So if any of your list fans out there want to see the show, please mention it to your local theater owner. We would love well, to. You see need, you the there's a huge, a huge fan base here in Chicago. How can you not come to Chicago? Yeah, we would love to bring the show to Chicago. It's a very funny show. Um, so. so it looks like, and I don't mean that you can go back to, yeah, okay, I don't know how to do that. Um, <laughs> So what's really nice is there are people, there are certainly actors who have tried to eschew the, the roles that they've had. They don't want to be known as that. And there are those who embrace who they were. It looks like your dad, although he, you know, is, is as much variety as he had, but he never, he never got mad that people saw him as Barney, whatever. He just, he embraced the fact that he had fans for all the parts of his life. You talk about a, a show where, you know, different stars from the show were being brought out one by one. And when your dad came out, they went nuts. That's right. Well, you know, he he was always very grateful for his career, and he was a very kind man. And I heard a story recently of a of a police officer, like you were saying, Dick Van Dyke went and knocked on the door of Stan Laurel. This guy came up and knocked on my dad's door, <laughs> and uh, my and actually, no, he didn't. He 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 chickened out. He didn't. But then he wrote him a letter and said. I almost knocked on your door and because I'm a policeman and I'm having a fundraiser for this event and we're wondering if you could help us out. And my dad wrote back and said, yeah, you should have just come in. And he sent him all kinds of pictures that he could sell for his fundraiser. I love it. (laughs) That's the kind of person my dad was. Of course, he he was also an artist who could be a little bit temperamental, just not to other people, but he could, he had that restlessness inside of himself. Yeah. So there was, there was always that, that angst, a little bit of angst, just like all performers have a little bit of angst. And did he know that the entire world thought that when he left Andy Griffith, we'll talk about that in a second, but when he left, that was just it. Nobody, when I see an episode of Andy Griffith on now and it's post your dad, it's like, I'm sorry, but I kind of sometimes change the channel. If, if, If Don's not in it, I don't want to watch it. I know, you know, and a lot of people ask me, why did he leave the show? And they're they're upset. But let me tell you, everyone, (laughs) playing Barney Fife was an extremely, extremely exhausting and time consuming thing to do. And he did it for five years. They they did so many shows in every season. He had hardly any time off because he was in every show. By the way, in fairness to him, he agreed to five years because Andy said we're going to do it for five years, and he thought he'd be free. That's right. He is. He never knew that Andy was going to change his mind until after he had already committed to do the movie career. But I think, for his own sake, that he needed to get off the Andy Griffith show because he he had no other life. Twelve hours a day is what they had to. They were filming they they filmed they filmed one show and then one day a week during that week they would be rehearsing for the next week's show already because it was so tight it was so many shows in the can in each season so i think by the end of that show he was just exhausted and another thing everyone that everyone wants to believe the show is real and the characters are real but after five years there's only so many situations that you can create and then after that, there, there's, you're just, he did not, you don't want to go from excellence to, oh, okay, 
Some of the shows are good, some of them aren't. And that that's inevitable in a sitcom that runs that long. You can't keep up that level of excellence forever. It's impossible. Although, fortunately, he made some returns, and we got to see him in some color episodes yeah. when he came back. And I, I had told you this one other time, but I just very quickly say it here that I owned a couple I owned a couple of props from the show, one of which was the oh. jailhouse keys, and I showed them to your dad, and yeah. I said, Don, were these the keys? And he went, you know, Paul, they're a prop. I don't know. But he said, but give me a piece of paper. And I gave him my business card, and he wrote on the back, Barney's keys, Don, <laughs> now they're real. Don't worry about it. I have a, a, a telephone, telephone as well that was used. Uh, and it was either the courthouse or, or the, the home. But uh, so anyway, just obviously have a, a great passion for it. But, but while we have a little time, I want, you know, your dad wasn't only Barney Fife. So my favorite movie as a kid was, of course, The Incredible Mr. Limpet, which he was still on Andy Griffith when he was doing. I have an original cell from the film. Your dad signed that for me and a, a few other limpet things. Um, that was really an amazing role that also was like the first role where real life animation came together and you talked to Mrs. Limpet. Yes, and I also talked to Jim Carrey. Who, oh, uh, right, yes. Who, yeah, because uh, there was a story of him remaking it, but it didn't happen. He was going to do a remake of Limpet, um, and I asked him why, and he said that um, they just didn't have the te- technical ability at the time to do what he wanted to do with it. But um, he he was a, he, but he remembered sitting on the floor in his aunt's kitchen watching the show, and how and he loved it so much. And and then yeah, Carol Cook. Oh, she was such a hoot. Um, she ended up telling me stories about Lucille Ball as well. Volume two. Um, she she yeah, well, she she's she's a great lady. And I she was the reason one of the reasons I went into show business too, because I was on the set when they shot that film, that scene where she's putting the glasses on the fish. Yeah. And and I went afterwards and looked in the box and there was nothing, just was like a scrap box of junk. And I was like, she made me believe that was really a fish that she put the glasses on. I want to do that too. And you talked about the fact that there was a, there was actually a big tank that they worked with that was on, on set there, right? It's no longer there, but no longer there. Uh, I think they had some problems with that tank. <laughs> it was too huge and a lot of upkeep. But um, yeah, it was there. It was there at the time. And he also had the chance. I know it's like goes to Mr. Chicken and the reluctant astronaut. He had such power that some of those movies you see a lot of Mayberry characters there and other people from his life, and that's because he made that happen. That was by design. Yeah, the ghost of Mr. Chicken had all kinds of that, uh, actors from the, from the Andy Griffith show. Um, and also, you know, he had friends that he would put in different smaller roles or whatever he could work them into. He was very good about that. And by the way, Andy always called your dad Jess. For folks mm-hmm. who don't know why, why did he call him Jess? Well, my dad's full name was Jesse Donald Knotts. And so dad let know that he didn't like being called Jesse. So Andy started calling him Jess. And then dad started calling Andy Ange. So that's kind of how they got on even keel. And I, and I will tell you that in the studio, I work with several people named Andy and I call all of them Ange. I just do. Uh, so, <laughs> You're allowed. Yeah, I just, I'm just sure think. my dad would have written you a note. Go ahead and call everybody Ange. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, and of course, you know, we don't want to forget he's Mr. Furley. And, and such great stories with that, where they start off when um, the, the original Ropers were going to get their own show. And the thought is we need a Don Knotts type. And somebody goes, how about Don Knotts? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, they. This is a typical thing that happens in Hollywood, where they'll say, "Let's get a so a type so and so," and that person's still alive. Right. <laughs> and, um, and Gene, one of the writers, explained to me, "Well, the, the thinking behind that is that the real person wouldn't want to do this. Uh, they would want star billing, or they would want, you know, they want special treatment or something like that, and without even asking the person." 
without giving them a chance. Uh, yeah, well, B. Arthur had that. That's how B. Arthur got into Golden Girls. There was discussion of let's get a B. Arthur type, and somebody went, oh, "Really? Let's get B. Arthur." Uh, so, <laughs> so that worked. And of course, your dad knew. He did dinner theater. He did these, you know, other other roles. And of course, your dad would show up in Matlock uh, for some periods. So they actually did remain close friends right to yeah. the end. They they were stay close all their lives. And um, Andy, uh, at one point, my dad was like when he, my dad turned eighty. Andy gave him three ukuleles. They were like top of the line ukuleles. Um, they had a thing. Men of that era had a thing about ukuleles. It just went beyond, you know, just it went beyond musicianship. It was something about the ukulele. You have them? Do you have them? No, I don't have them anymore. Actually, we sent them back to Andy because those were his, you know, he wanted them. Oh, okay. And but, so I have to talk about something else. You know, Betty Lynn is gone now and stuff. So a little more of our private conversation, but she's not here. Um, but you write about this in the book, your dad as the ladies man. You know, mm-hmm. when people think of Barty's fight, that's not who you're thinking of. But Betty told me uh, just over lunch that, you know, that your dad was very well aware. Uh, and she said, her words, she said he kind of saw himself as Frank Sinatra. You have some Frank Sinatra stories in there and all of that. But what is your take on that? Your dad, I mean, he did have a few marriages and all of that. And he kind of was a ladies man. I don't. I never got that from him, but then, you know, that's not something he would have shared with me. Yeah. You're his daughter, daughter, you know, but I clearly saw that he was a ladies man just because, just by the way, women looked at him and reacted to him and that he always was able to get dates and so on. And he had a lot of relationships. Um, and he was a very good, um, partner when he was in a relationship with a woman he was very caring and very wonderful man that way too. You know, his last wife was Francie. I met her. Uh, as well one time are you in touch with her at all you have the relationship or well not not right now although i didn't interview her but i have been in touch with Lee recently my dad's second wife mm-hmm. so it kind of goes in and out it's like when you have a stepmothers or stepfathers i think you kind of go in and out with them you know maybe some people stay close to them but they were that was a certain period of time in your life where you don't necessarily relive that but Sometimes you might think of them and go to them. And, and so late, well, lately, I've been very close with Laura Lee, and we've been talking a lot. So that's been nice. And you have, I mean, the book ends with your, your dad's passing. And, and uh, you know, and it's, and it's just, you know, it's, again, it's one of those people, like when you get to that section in those pages, you just don't want to read them. You don't, you don't want to think he's gone. Um, but you had to live through that, you and your brother and, uh, and Francie. And, and um, I mean, that, it, was, it was truly the passing of an icon. And I know you, you all knew that. Well, yeah, you know, I just remember that night after he passed in the hospital, Tom and Francie and I went to dad's condo and we just sat there and we felt him there still, you know, with like we felt his presence still there. And then we all spent the night there like sleeping bags and Laura Lee was even there, I think. And then um, and I thought, okay, we've only got one night. And then in the morning, the phone's going to ring and it's not going to stop. And that's exactly what happened. So then, then it was like the real reality hit that morning, you yeah. know, when everybody was calling and the newspapers were calling and it's like the last thing you wanted to deal with, but you had to because the world is warning him as well. How does it feel? Look, I'm guilty of it too, because I'm sitting here wanting to tell you my own stories of, of, of talking to your dad. You must get it all the time. Anytime you appear, anytime you're on stage, people want to talk to you afterwards and tell you either what they thought of your dad, or maybe they met your dad. Um, is that something you welcome or, or do you kind of 
he's your dad and these are your memories. And I well, I, I certainly do when I'm doing a show. Um, but when I come after the show and I come to talk to people, then I'm very interested in hearing their stories. Um, and I was just in my dad's hometown, Morgantown, doing the show there in Park, Parkersburg. And people... People were buying my books and they were telling me all kinds of stories. It was wonderful. It was lovely. You know, so love the way there Morgantown, there's a road, right? They named a street after him there, yeah. right? Don Knotts Boulevard, yeah. Yeah, and that and he was there for I mean, I love that because it's it's, nice. it's one thing when they do it when you're gone, but he knew. And I yeah, think he was there. He was there for the grand opening of the street. That's so fabulous. And I know there's a statue. You wrote about this in the book. There's a, a, a I might have this wrong, but I think it's him on a park bench, maybe or somebody. But he's he, there's a statue of him there, and I think there people ask questions of, but it's not Barney Fife, right? Right, and so yeah. the answer is no, because it's my dad. He grew up here. Yeah, well, I like I I said say to people who say, who have that opinion that a statue honors the creator, you know, and he was the creator of Barney Fife. In reality, he was a very quiet, thoughtful man. You know, he wasn't this guy in his st- <laughs> stereo all the time. By the so, way, do you know who came up with the name Barney Fife? Did he do that? I think the name came from um, Fife is a street in Morgantown. Ah, okay. I think, I think that Fife came from there. I don't know exactly where Barney Fife, Barney came from, though. Gotcha. And did you guys, I mean, you've talked to so many people, but through the years, Jim Neighbors, of course, he and his you know, partner lived in Hawaii and, and whatever. But have you, have you stayed in touch? Sounds like maybe at, at the Mayberry days, but it looks like you had good relationships with, um, you know, with, with, with Eleanor Donahue and, and different people throughout the years. Yeah, I do. Um, now a lot of people have passed, though. But, um, but the people who remain, I'm, I'm fairly close to, I, you know, um, not too close with Ron Howard because he's very busy all the time. Yeah. But, but he, but I did interview him for my book. He was very nice about that. And then he read the pages too. And, you know, there's so many, you know, when we read like Eleanor Donahue, your interviews of here, though I heard her, though I've known about this, but just this whole notion of maybe it was kind of a miscasting and there wasn't chemistry there. And, and she just wanted out of that role. People wondered what happened to Miss Ellie after a season or so, and she was ready to move on. Well, I think she was having more, it was more of a mental breakdown that she was having. She, uh, she, she felt like she wasn't doing a good job on the show. Then she got, first she got sick, really ill with pneumonia and was in the hospital for a while. Then she got out and she was, she never quite found her footing as an adult after, uh, she left, um, my, my fa- father knows best, right? Yeah. They ended that show very suddenly, and they were like her uh, surrogate family for her. And there was no goodbye. She told me there was no, 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 you know, no re- resolution. Yeah, you wrote about. I think you said that was a strike or something happened, and it just and then Robert Young said we're not coming back. There's just no yeah. end to this show. That's right. That's right. That's what she said. And so many stories, and you know, anybody that's my age or within a range. This is our life. It's your life and it's our life too. Only you really got to live it and inside. And I just want the book again is tied up in knots. You know, I told you, I got to read a lot of books to do this show. Uh, <laughs> and I do, I, you know, but sometimes maybe I don't read them as carefully as I should. Um, right. But this one, I am so in, so enamored in love with your dad that I just spent, I had to read it all because I just, and you know what? I appreciate that. I can tell that you really read it and that makes my heart feel good. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you for writing it and thank you for, for carrying on the legacy. And, and because now with your new show and your, your tied up and not show, you also just recently recorded the audio book. Is that right? So that's going to be out. Yes, yes, it is out there. Uh, you can get that on amazon.com. Um, yeah. The audio book. I haven't listened to it yet. <laughs> 
too nervous to listen to my own audio. I never watch my own shows either. I understand. Yeah, I so, and for people that want to, where where can they go to follow you if they want to see where you're appearing or where an, an upcoming show might be? KarenKnotts.com. Just my name, KarenKnotts.com. And click on the show page. There's a book page and a show page. And then the, there's another page too. <laughs> well, we have just a minute left. If you were to sum up your dad, the dad that you know, that, that we only know from television, who is Don Knotts? He was a very kind, funny, thoughtful, witty, intelligent, lovable man. Just had charisma. He could just sit in a room with saying nothing and all eyes would be on him. I mean, it just he, he was just somebody that had this magic. I don't know. That's it. <laughs> well, you're blessed. He was blessed and we're blessed for having had him in our lives. And now I'm blessed for having you in mine. And, well, thank uh, you very much. Tara Knotts, the author of Tied Up in Knotts. Check it out. My dad and me. That's the subtitle. Check it out. Look forward to seeing you on stage soon. Let's stay in touch. Congratulations on this great work. Thank you very much, Paul. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv and hey don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes and tune in each week to hear more insider scoop coming to you from behind the curtain